Almost every leadership role calls on us to develop the skills of others. Yet, most leaders have never had any formal training or even a single course on how to teach. In this episode, key strategies from the science of learning that will help you develop others faster and better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 421. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the key skills that all of us tap into as leaders is teaching others. We don't always call it teaching, and we may call it training, we may call it skill development, but really part of the role of a leader is being a teacher. Oftentimes we have a little bit more experience in something that we have delegated to someone else, or we're helping someone to maybe explore a skill for the first time, and we need to take on the role of teacher or trainer. And yet, most of us have received absolutely no training on how to do that. And if we have received training, it's been in a lot of other areas. Today, we're going to take you back to school and really explore some of the science behind how to teach in a more powerful way and how to use a couple of key practices that will help you to help others to learn effectively. I am so thrilled to welcome to the show today, Pooja Agarwal. She is an expert in the field of cognitive science and is passionate about bridging gaps between education and the science of learning. Pooja's research has been published in leading peer-reviewed psychology journals and featured in the New York Times, Education Week, and Scientific American. She is the founder of retrievalpractice.org, and she's an assistant professor at the Berkeley College of Music, teaching psychological science to exceptional undergraduate musicians. She also serves as a consultant and facilitates professional development workshops on the science of learning around the world. And she is the author, with Patrice Bain, of the book Powerful Teaching, Unleash the Science of Learning. Pooja, so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Oh, me too. We're going back to school. And you and I could geek out on this for hours, couldn't yes. we? <laughs> so, there's so much that we can do, some of the key things to help people to learn. But before we get into it, one of the things you mention in the book is that the science of learning sits dormant in academic journals rather than being easily accessible. And that just struck me as so true that most of us just have had almost little or no instruction on how to help other people learn, have we? Right. Yes. And it's it's so critical. We're all learners. And as you said, we're all teachers in, in any capacity, as leaders, as educators in the classroom, as parents. We're all learning and teaching, but there's still this either ambiguity around it and the research, but at the same time, it's intuitive. We do it every day, even without thinking about it. There's also a lot of things culturally that we've heard that are, in some cases, myths or just not true. And we're going to explore some of that today, too, so we can be really effective in the teaching and learning and training that we're doing. Before we dive in on the strategies, I think it might be helpful to do a quick overview of how the learning process works. And there's really three stages in how people learn. Could you walk us through how that works? 
These three stages that my co-author and I outlined in our book, Powerful Teaching, are based on a, a sort of very old, <laughs> simplistic model of learning. So there, I would actually say there are lots of stages of learning. And, and as I like to say, learning is, is messy. It happens in lots of different ways for lots of different people. But I do think this, this earlier three-part model is, is a really helpful framework. So the first stage is what we call encoding. And encoding is getting information into our heads. So actually listening to this podcast is a form of encoding or reading a book or watching a TV show. We're all sort of inputting information and, and getting it into our heads. So that's the first stage, encoding. The second stage is uh, storage. So we hope that we're doing all this encoding, we're getting stuff into our heads. And with storage, we hope that information is stored, or we hope that it sticks, depending on the context, especially for the long term. So that's storage. And then the third stage is what we call retrieval. And so that's the kind of end process, or it can be, where we then pull information out. We're retrieving almost like a golden retriever that goes to get something and bringing it back when we almost mentally time travel and try to remember the most recent movie we watched. That is a form of retrieval. And so in the book, I give an, an everyday example that I'm sure all of us have experienced where I was in California, actually. I was in Oakland visiting family, and I was trying to get to a coffee shop. I had asked my brother, you know, is there a quiet coffee shop nearby that's good to work at? And he had said, oh, yeah, you know, it's four, four blocks down the street. You really can't miss it. I thought, okay. So he told me the name and I woke up the next morning and I couldn't remember the name of the coffee shop. And of course, without knowing the name, I didn't know how to look it up on Google. <laughs> yeah. So I had to ask him for the name again. And even that process, asking him about a coffee shop and him telling me the name is that first stage of encoding. And then we have this intuitive, automatic sense of, of course, I'm going to remember that in the morning. Of course, it's going to get stored. And then when I came to retrieve it, it just flew out of my head. <laughs> it, I tried that mental process of retrieving the name of the coffee shop and where it was located. So those are, you know, in a, again, very simple way, the three stages of learning that we like to think about. One of the things that strikes me in thinking about those three stages, when we think about training someone or in your capacity as an educator in the classroom, is a lot of the least for me, the traditional thinking about what is training, what is education, what is learning is around the encoding piece, but not mm -hmm. as much around the other side of that, which is the retrieval. And, and retrieval is a key strategy in actually helping people to learn better. Could you tell us a little bit about retrieval practice and, and what's so significant about it? I completely agree. That third stage just kind of goes by the wayside. And with retrieval, we often in, in educational settings and higher ed, for instance, we often think of retrieval as showing what you know. So we might assess students with a final exam and that's retrieval. They're having to think about what they encoded, what they learned. They're thinking about and figuring out, did it stick? And then they're outputting it on an exam. So we often think of retrieval as just that assessment. Did you learn something and did it stick? But what I find fascinating, and I love talking about retrieval, is that we learn when we retrieve. 
So one example I like, and, and Dave, I'm not sure if you do, do you enjoy pub trivia or, or bar trivia? I'll tell you after you tell me what's next. <laughs> <laughs> well, aside from the beer and the social aspect. You know, oh, people, yeah, 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 yeah. I right, know what you're talking yeah. about. Okay. Yeah. People love going to, to bars and, and coming up with, you know, answers to trivia. Of course, Jeopardy is a lot of fun. And, and we like testing our knowledge. We like retrieving. But then at the same time, it seems maybe counterintuitive that by that act of retrieving, we are helping us remember something in the future. So I'll give you another example. And Dave, I'm curious if you remember this since we mentioned it in the book. Do you remember or know the number of bones in the adult human body? 206. 206. <laughs> you yeah, remembered, right? Do. So do. how do you think you remembered? What was that process for you of thinking about the number of bones? So it's funny you asked this because I literally read it last night when I was preparing for the conversation. And my memory from school was that it was a little bit over 200. And I remembered Bonnie's favorite number, which is 208 which is a whole story behind that, which I won't bore you all with. <laughs> and then I thought, well, it must be close to that. And then when I read it, I thought, oh, it's a, it's a little less than 208. So that was my just mnemonic for remembering that and, and tying it to something else I already knew. Great. And, and that's where learning is messy, but it's also intuitive, which I think is another aspect fascinating about the three stages and about retrieval is we do learn when we use stuff. And it's a practice makes perfect. I heard someone recently share that what they like to say is practice makes permanent. And so even by asking those questions in our book or asking those questions, we will remember it more than if I had just simply told you. So for instance, if I had simply told you, oh, here's a, a feature of, you know, poll everywhere, or uh, I really like using Google Keep as a productivity tool. So here's how you can do something on Google Keep as opposed to having you retrieve it and do it yourself. And we know that that's how we learn, but then again, in different contexts, it just goes out the window. Yeah, I think this is a, such a significant point for leaders, is this, rather than looking at retrieval as just we do it when it quote-unquote counts, like in an assessment or maybe in front of a customer or a client, is we actually do this as a regular practice during the learning process in order to help people to learn. And the, the thought that comes up for me, we had an episode recently on delegation. And one of the questions that a leader often finds themselves asking when they've delegated some work is, do you understand? Does this all make sense? And most people are going to say yes, because <laughs> they don't want to look silly in front of their boss. Or even if it's not 100% clear, they may say yes. Rather than asking a question that when I've read your book now thinking like, that's the wrong question to ask, the right question to ask is, tell me what you remember from this conversation or what are the key things that are a part of this project that are the deliverables and asking that person to actually articulate it so that not only can you assess where they are in the, in the learning stage, but also it helps them to learn and reinforce what they're learning. Yes. And so to go back to those three stages by saying, do you understand that almost, again, focuses on that encoding stage. Did you get it? Did you get it in? As opposed to, can you retrieve it and actually tell me what it is? 
One of the other key points that I love, and there's so many applications of this for leaders too, is stop reviewing things. Instead, ask for what was discussed. Tell, tell me more about that. Yes. So one example I love to think about and to get feedback on is often as, as leaders and managers, we sit in so many meetings. <laughs> and of course, they're not always productive. And we often default And I'm not sure if it's just we default because we don't think about it or why, but we often start meetings with, all right, here's what we did in the last meeting. So here's what we're going to accomplish today. Yeah. And instead of just reviewing, even going through the minutes, for instance, instead of just reviewing what happened last time, an aspect of retrieval that is so much fun, and we can talk about how you build a supportive culture around this, but it's fun to say, actually, take a minute and write down what you can remember from the previous meeting. And then whether you dedicate another minute to discuss that or just move on, you have helped people mentally retrieve and improve their learning and memory. So they're going to better latch onto, they're going to better understand the content of the present meeting, as opposed to simply having been told, here's what we did, so let's move on. And one of the things that's so fascinating is, um, in addition to this not taking any longer, the results are really remarkable when you look at the research and some of the studies. And I'm curious if you could give us an example of just what you found in the research when you're doing retrieval practice versus when it's not done. This is a really interesting interplay between how we try to learn things initially and then how we try to retrieve them. And what a lot of research shows is that what helps us learn in the short term does not help us remember in the long term. And of course, depending on the context, we may only need to learn something for a short period of time. But I think often in life as managers, as leaders, as employees, we want to remember stuff for the long term. It's so frustrating to have to rehash things (laughs) over and over, right? And so if we can do something to help promote that long-term learning, it's just so much beneficial in that long run. So an example from research and, and from the classroom is where when students cram for exams. And so Dave, you probably have had the experience of having a final and cramming, right? Oh, yeah. 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 And we all do it. And There's no blame on students. That's actually how we learn. That's a really smart study strategy to cram in the short term. So cramming helps you ace that exam the next day. But as soon as you take that exam, what happens to you, Dave, when you've been in this situation? Oh, 48 hours later, you know, half of what I uh, quote unquote learned seems to be gone. (laughs) Right. And so in both this research and in everyday life, we often do things to remember what we have learned in the short term and not in the long term. So I'll give an example from everyday life, but it, it applies in lots of other contexts, is when we read books, sometimes we highlight, we might write some notes in the margin, and we might you know, take notes on a piece of paper or electronically on a Word document. In a simple switch that takes no extra time, I don't think, or maybe takes an extra minute, but pays off in the long run, is let's say you're reading a book, and at the end of the chapter, you simply write down, what do you remember? 
or you write down what are the three key points. You close the book and you make yourself retrieve. And all of this research shows that you will remember more. You will benefit from having just dedicated the time to reading that book if you retrieve after your reading as opposed to just taking notes. And that kind of gets to the word practice and retrieval practice too, right? This is a practice ongoing in learning. And if you're doing that consistently, the ability to, to learn over the long term is really substantial. Yes, yes. So that practice of retrieving frequently, the practice of even getting more comfortable with retrieval. We're all embarrassed when we forget someone's name at a networking event. (laughs) And the more we can retrieve and practice that retrieval, the more stuff will stick. It's really remarkable to me, looking through the research, of how substantially different the numbers are. As you say, cramming does work in the short term. But if you really want to learn something, the retrieval practice, it's its night and day <laughs> what the it research is. shows on how much of a difference it is. And I, th- I think that one of the things I'm hearing you say is that for things that really matter, I mean, we've all taken exams and taken certifications, things like that, that maybe we needed to check the box for whatever reason. But for the things that really matter to learn in the long run or the things that we're teaching others, if we can incorporate some aspect of retrieval practice, not just at the assessment point or the exam or the certification or the quality inspection, but along the way, that that's huge. And our need to then have to go back and reteach and retrain things that right. you know we should have gotten the first time. Yes. Yeah. And imagine all the amount of time we spend and literally, I think, waste on training when we learn it in the short term and it disappears. And then when you actually need to know it, oh my gosh, that experience of having to relearn it gets really frustrating. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Okay. So this is this is one key strategy, retrieval practice. Another key one that you teach in the book is spacing. Tell us about spacing. Spacing is another research-based strategy that I I like because it's, again, intuitive. It's a strategy that boosts learning based on a lot of research. And all spacing is, is spacing out learning over time. And it can be combined with retrieval practice really effectively. So going back to my example of when we start a meeting with our team, instead of saying, here's what we did last time. If you ask people to retrieve what they did last time, that's a form of spacing. So that kind of intervening time between your meeting last week and your meeting this week adds an additional struggle that helps you over the long term. So of course, the opposite of spacing would be cramming. You're not spacing things out. You're, you're doing something over and over the night before or the day of or the week before as opposed to spacing things out. So for instance, instead of learning a new software process all on a Monday, even if you spend an hour of it all on Monday, this research demonstrates that if you just chop it up a little bit and spend 20 minutes on Monday, 20 minutes on Wednesday, and 20 minutes on Friday, you will remember that process or that skill better in the long term. Yeah, cool. All right. So the last one is metacognition. What is metacognition? Metacognition is thinking about our own thinking, 
we're thinking about our own learning. So cognition referring to things that these kind of processes in our head. So thinking, making decisions, attention, memory, and metacognition, literally, you know, meta being bigger is the meta, the thinking process about our own thinking or being aware of our own learning. So like the example we had talked about earlier, when you ask someone, all right, are you on board? Do you get what I had just delegated or asked you to do? And someone says, yes. Well, it would be nice to foster this support and environment where people are comfortable with their metacognition in saying, you know what? I don't think I got that. Can you clarify for me again? Or can I retrieve and repeat this back to you? And you to help give me feedback so I am more aware of what I know and what I don't know. And so often I worry that in workplace settings with metacognition, we're too quick to jump in with, yes, you've got it right, or you got that wrong, so let me fix it real quick. As opposed to letting people be a little uncomfortable with, do I know that or do I not know that? So an example with my college students is when they have weekly quizzes, because they have retrieval all the time. So when they have weekly quizzes on a short answer question, I just simply have little check boxes that say nailed it or not sure. And students can take a moment, either while they're writing a response or afterwards, to take a second to just think about, engage their metacognition and checkbox the nailed it or the not sure box. And that way they are becoming more aware of their own learning. Ah, and I'm wondering as a leader, if we, if we're teaching something, if we could do a bit of that as well too, of like you said, rather than jumping in so quickly to help people to raise their awareness of, do they really understand this or not? And making that safe to say, no, I don't quite have it. Because I don't know if any research has been done on this, but I just wonder like how much waste happens in organizations of time and resources because someone says, yeah, I got it. Or yeah, I know how to do that. And of course, they really don't. <laughs> Either because they don't want to say or because they just don't have the awareness, which I think is true a lot of the time, is they're not aware that they don't understand something. And I'm wondering, when you think about that context, is there a question or a practice or something that you'd encourage someone to do in conversation as you're training someone that would just help to move a little bit in that direction of helping people to build that awareness? I like to think about that fostering that supportive environment where people are comfortable making mistakes. Again, going back to that productive struggle, the desirable difficulty, we need to encourage people to retrieve and to make mistakes. And we all learn from our mistakes. And so how can we help people, especially adult learners in the context of the workplace, how can we help people be comfortable with making mistakes, with recognizing, acknowledging that they don't know something? And there are two ways I like to, to approach this. One is that I like to ask a lot of retrieval questions that have no right or wrong answer. So one question I like to ask and we ask in powerful teaching is what people's least favorite ice cream flavor is. So not your favorite ice cream, but your least favorite. Can you think of your least favorite, Dave? 
that the neon blue ice cream that they have at Baskin Robbins <laughs> that has little gum pieces in it that my daughter loves to get and I just think yeah. is just disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I think, is that Superman ice cream? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime I see it, I'm just horrified though. And my least favorite is mint chocolate chip, which is very controversial. Oh, but yeah. I don't like mint chocolate chip. There's, there's a whole nother conversation we could have about yes. that. <laughs> We should have a whole podcast episode just about least favorite ice creams. People get really intense about this, right? And all we did is we just retrieved. You thought about your daughter eating that ice cream. Yeah. And that's retrieval. It has no stakes attached to it whatsoever. So I've got a lot of examples about these no stakes optional questions. I call them retrieval warm-ups that even when I'm giving workshops with adults, I start off with these warm-ups to help foster this sense of, oh, we're retrieving, but there's nothing, there are no consequences attached to it. So even making that point, modeling that helps. And then the second component I feel is making those kind of no stakes judgments again. So not putting someone on the spot and saying, do you know it or not? But maybe giving someone a moment to feel comfortable to think about, do I know it? Or do I not know it? it can make a really big difference as opposed to just putting someone on the spot and saying, tell me what you know, or can you do it or not? I'm a big fan of having everyone write and retrieve individually or type on a computer individually. That's why I suggest at the beginning of a meeting is to have everyone engage in retrieval by writing down what they can remember. Because I'm sure we've all been in a situation where there's one person who speaks up and always knows everything and everyone else is shy to speak up. But if we all engage in that retrieval, that metacognition, do I know it or I don't, and spend that time doing it without being put on the spot, without having those stakes, then we can move towards sort of the higher stakes of training. Did you get what we need you to get from that training? How can we then make you comfortable with making mistakes? I can't let you go without talking about learning styles because one of the probably most common, if not the most common conversation I have with leaders and folks in the workplace around learning styles is, okay, I'm I'm this kind of a learner. I'm a visual learner, or I'm an auditory learner, or I'm a kinesthetic learner, which are the three that all of us have heard many times. What does the research say about that? <laughs> the research demonstrates that we learn more effectively when we learn in lots of different ways. And we all have preferences. You know, I have food preferences. I have learning preferences. Some of us may really enjoy listening to podcasts and audiobooks. Some of us really like to read books and not listen to podcasts or audiobooks. We have preferences. But what this research demonstrates is that in a general sort of scale, maybe not so much necessarily individually with our preferences, but let's say you've got a room of people learning, employees or teams or students, everyone will retain more information over the long run when you teach, when you impart and share information in multiple ways. So when it's visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. It's interesting to me because with learning styles, we're almost saying we're all individuals, but then I worry we're actually also pigeonholing ourselves. Mm. As opposed to saying, let's present things in a lot of different ways, there's research demonstrating that that helps people in the long term. Another aspect of, of learning styles is that it really depends on the content. 
So you wouldn't necessarily learn how to play basketball by just listening. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't necessarily learn a new software program by going, you know, by just watching. You have to go through the motions. And so even if we have these preferences, learning demonstrates that it's much more effective to learn in different ways. Just because I teach half of my students, let's say half of my students are deemed to be visual learners and half of my students are auditory learners. If I teach only visually, whatever that would mean, but if I taught only visually, it doesn't mean my visual preference students are going to learn more. Uh, so there's a difference here between like and effectiveness, right? So I may have a preference for auditory learning or encoding, as we were talking about earlier, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a better learner than I would be if I was doing kinesthetic learning or visual learning or anything else, right? Yes. And so for any listeners who want to dive into this, I'd recommend looking at the blog and articles by Dan Willingham. He's a cognitive scientist at the University of Virginia, and he's written a lot about research on learning styles that pretty much demonstrates you know, it doesn't matter how I teach versus visual learners and auditory learners. We all kind of learn the same and we all learn with different in different ways. So Dan Willingham is a great resource who's written a lot more about learning styles and, and that sort of aspect of a learning myth. Fascinating. Oh, so much here. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put links to so many of the things that Pooja mentioned in the show notes, also the weekly leadership guide. There are two websites that'll be helpful for folks who are looking to dive in more. Would you tell us about the two sites you've got that would be helpful if people want to dive in on more resources? The first site that I have that I would love for everyone to just even tinker around with, explore, be comfortable making mistakes, not that you'd make mistakes on a website, but is <laughs> retrievalpractice.org. So simply retrievalpractice.org. And I send out weekly emails to about 10,000 teachers around the world. And I intend for these emails to be 30 seconds or less. They link to a resource, they share a quick strategy you can use in everyday life or in learning and teaching settings. So I'd encourage you to go to retrievalpractice.org and sign up for the email. I also have lists of recommended books. So lots of books by colleagues who have published really great resources on the science of learning. And I also have a website for my book specifically, which is powerfulteaching.org. So there we talk more about what is the content of the book. We've got some free downloads there as well for templates that people can use to really empower their teams, empower their own working, to take these strategies and make them their own. Of course, there's one thing to read a book and then to never remember it and never do anything with it. And it's quite another thing to read a book and actually be able to engage in the material and adapt it for your workplace for the work that you do. So retrievalpractice.org, I've got downloads, recommended books, and then powerfulteaching.org, more specific for the book that I just published. Perfect. Uh, thank you for all the resources. And for those listening, if you in particular find yourself doing a lot of training, either formally as a trainer facilitator or informally, as most of us do on a regular basis, if you're doing onboarding, if you're teaching new skills, the strategies here are so helpful. And then uh, if that's not you, if you have a teacher in your life, either someone who's in a traditional 
classroom or is in a training or facilitation capacity, this is a wonderful resource for them. There's there's so many things, Pooja, I'm, I'm stealing to use in our academy sessions here too going forward, just thinking about retrieval practice and how I haven't done a good enough job with that. I'm going to start changing up some of my strategies on this. So uh, speaking of changing strategies, one final question for you is as you've published this book and you've been going around and teaching people all over the world around how to be more effective learners and researched it, of course, too. What have you changed your mind on in the recent past? I love that question. <laughs> it makes me retrieve, you know, it's facing. <laughs> Maybe I am doing better than I thought. <laughs> yeah. I mean, conversations are a form of retrieval, sharing stories are retrieval. Something that maybe has changed or continues to evolve for me is the balance between research and practical strategies. So for a long time, I thought, oh, you know, that everyone has to know about this research. If they don't know about the research, they can't implement the strategies. So I'm going to go super into depth about this research. And over the years, I have found a balance that I hope is a lot more effective. So balancing talking about the research, but also talking about some of the practical strategies we mentioned, and also adding on that modeling component. So we've been retrieving this whole podcast episode. And I think that sort of trifecta is something that continues to evolve for me. So I guess what's changed one thing is, is how I've thought about how to translate research really to leaders, to teachers, to educators, to help them do what they do better, to help them do it better over the long term. I love that. And it shows up so much in the book. There's a ton of the research, but also a lot of the practical strategies that people can pick up and use right away. Pooja, thank you so much for this conversation. I know you're going to get a lot of us thinking how to do the learning we're facilitating more effectively, uh, whether in a formal setting or one-on-one. I uh, so appreciate your wisdom for us. Well, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to share the science of learning. Pooja Agarwal is the author with Patrice Bain of the book, Powerful Teaching, Unleash the Science of Learning. Thank you, Pooja, and several related episodes to today's conversation. If you, like me, are thinking about how to get better at helping others to develop, I'd recommend episode 32, The Best Way to Do On-The-Job Training. In that episode, I walk through some of the key strategies that I have used over the years, things that I learned in my work at Dale Carnegie that helped me to develop others. Some key principles there. It fits in very well with this conversation. Doesn't reflect all of the recent research, but a number of practical things that will be helpful to you there. Again, that's episode 32. Also, I'd recommend episode 237, These Coaching Questions Get Results with Michael Bungay-Stanier. As you heard about in today's conversation, being able to ask questions and help folks to retrieve what it is that they have encoded and stored previously is very helpful. And of course, coaching questions are another avenue to be able to do that well. And episode 237 is a great starting point for that. It features the work of Michael Bungay-Stanier. It's probably my favorite business book of the last five years, The Coaching Habit. And in that episode, Michael and I talk about seven of the key questions that he teaches leaders on how to be more effective in their coaching skills to become more coach-like. I also would recommend episode 273, The Essentials of Adult Development with 
Mindy Dana. In that episode, Mindy and I talked about just the different ways and levels that people show up in the workplace uh, as adults and the different development levels that people show up as. And you will see all of those development levels in virtually every team that you have the privilege of leading or influencing in organizational life. Episode 273 is a really good overview of some of the broad brushstrokes on what kind of folks show up and the levels they're at. So uh, check that out if that'd be helpful to you. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 405, my recent conversation with David Marquet on developing leaders before you leave. One of the key things that you may have heard David talk about in that episode is how he would have people go through a process of really repeating back what it is that they have quote-unquote learned. And he didn't use the term retrieval practice, but that's exactly what he's doing. And you'll hear echoes of that throughout David's work. I know many of you are fans of his work in the book, Turn the Ship Around. And episode 405 is a great place for that. And then finally, if you haven't already come across it, I did announce a month or two ago that I have now begun airing a brand new podcast called Dave's Journal. It's separate from this show, supports some of the things that we're doing here on Coaching for Leaders, but it is a brief five minutes or less episode a week that features some of the thinking that I've had on some of the things that have been presented here on the show, but also just some things that I've run into across over the years that I think would be helpful for leaders. So if you haven't already checked that out, uh, just search for Dave's Journal or just search for my name on whatever podcast app you use to listen to the show and you'll track it down. Let me know if it's helpful to you. I would love to hear. And while you're online, please take a few minutes also to activate your coachingforleaders.com free membership if you haven't already. Uh, Once you do, it's going to give you access to the entire library of episodes since 2011, now also including Dave's Journal. Those are also being cataloged there as well and searchable by topic. Uh, In addition, you'll get access to my weekly leadership guide coming every Wednesday, my entire personal library data-based online, the member cast, and a whole bunch more that you'll have access to for free. So just go on over to coachingforleaders.com and you can set up your free membership right there. Thank you so much for listening. If you benefited from this conversation or you know someone who's doing a lot of training or skill development right now, please take a moment and pass it along to them. And thanks in advance if you do. Have a fabulous week and I'll see you back next Monday for our next conversation about leadership. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.